Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Lisa Kucher, the executive director of the Kremples Center. The Kremples Center is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of people living with brain injury from trauma, tumor, or stroke. In partnership with universities and community volunteers, the Kremples Center offers programs that engage its members in meaningful and productive experiences and provides ongoing support and resources to those, including survivors and family members, impacted by brain injury. In addition, the organization's community outreach initiative provides education to the public about brain injury and brain injury prevention. Lisa is a graduate of the University of New Hampshire, having double majored in social work and outdoor education. She served in a variety of leadership roles in a number of organizations leading up to her position as the executive director of the Kremple Center in 2009. In the full-length version of the interview, we discuss her early career as well as her time at the Kremple Center. The full-length interview runs about 90 minutes. I have produced an abridged version that runs about 40 minutes. This is the abridged version, which begins with Lisa's time at the Kremple Center. If you'd like to listen to the full-length version, which includes her education and early experiences, please see our website, healthleaderforge.org, for the link. Also, if you do enjoy this podcast, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Lisa Kucher. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be doing this with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing because you are a UNH grad, and that's always exciting that's right. to have on. <laughs> In 2009, you joined the Kremple Center, where right. you are today. <laughs> and so you've been here. Uh, you've been here as the executive. You came in as the executive yes. director. Yeah. So you've been the executive director for 10 years plus now. Right. So before we talk about your role, let's talk about the Kremple Center. What is the Kremple Center? How did it come about? And, and what does it do for, for its clients? So we are a community program for adults living with acquired brain injury. And what that means is someone who was living without a disability and then suddenly had a stroke or a traumatic brain injury or another injury to the brain such as like a brain tumor or maybe loss of oxygen in the brain or what have you, that ha- impacted them long term. And we serve people from age 18 through, you know, into their senior years. And uh, about half the people that come to our program have had a traumatic brain injury, so like a car accident or a fall, and about a quarter have had a stroke, and then a quarter kind of fall in a other, the other, other category. And after people go home, when they're rec- after they've gotten sort of back on their feet, maybe literally, maybe not, have the basic, can do some basic things, getting around the house, being mobile, feeding themselves, hopefully talking again. But they're recognizing that they're not able to go back to work. They're often very socially isolated. Um, and they're struggling with both visible and invisible aspects of their injury, which can be very stressful and confusing both for them and the people in their lives. And so this leads to a lot of depression, despair, a lack of sense of how to navigate this new life. Now, some people have uh, injury to their brain and they can go back to that life. It's mild enough that they're able to go back to work, what have you. 
But if you're not, um, you don't have much going on in your life outside of perhaps outpatient rehab. And that's not much of a life, especially if you're a young person or a middle-aged person, frankly, or even when you're a senior, it's tough. But at least at that point, you may be retired or what have you. It's not so life as life throwing up in the air as if you were, let's say, 40 and had a stroke. So people are struggling and at home and not doing well. And before this organization was founded, that was their life. David Crumples, who the organization is named after, had a traumatic brain injury. And his story is very much like I just described. Uh, But what was different for him is that he was awarded a significant amount of money from his accident. And he spent, after kind of settling into sort of living with his injury and getting back on his feet financially, he wanted to do something good with the funds he had received. And so he started actually with some friends providing brain injury survivors with some like emergency funding because he had struggled financially. He knows what that, he knew what that was like. Um, But as he was having these conversations with people over a couple of years, he was really hearing people say what, what this person really needs is a friend. And so he recognized that himself because of his own isolation, his own struggles. And so he started to conceptualize this idea of a place for people to come together to connect with those who understand what they're going through, to work on skill building and exploring new life interests and really finding a new path in this, on their, their, on their life trajectory. And so that program opened up here at the community campus in Portsmouth in 2000, um, which was gosh, 19, 19 years ago, this October actually. Mm -hmm. And, you know, start off with just a handful of brain injury survivors, we partnered with UNH right away, uh, their occupational therapy program. And so we had brain injury survivors and a few occupational therapy programs and a couple of staff. Um, and it's grown, you know, by leaps and bounds over all these years. We've had, you know, hundreds of people with brain injury coming into our program and then, you know, moving on. Mm-hmm. Or we have some people that still 19 years later coming to our program because mm-hmm. we say once a member, always a member because we know that so many people are living with the chronic effects and if they need to step away for a while, but then find they want to come back, they can. So the door's always open. Um, and we've had, you know, probably at this point, maybe thousands of UNH interns, not just occupational therapy, but um, uh, therapeutic recreation, speech and language, social work, psychology. I just met a couple of psychology students yesterday, actually, that were starting their program. Uh, a lot of undergrad, but also some graduate students as well. And mostly from UNH, but some from other schools mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It's really a really strong program and um, really making a difference in people's lives. And, you know, have been able to conduct research with, you, with UNH, actually, which has been great. That really shows the results of what we're doing, the impact it has on people's quality of life. Are there a lot of programs like Crumple Center out uh, across the U.S.? Or? There really aren't, actually. There's not much at all. There's probably a handful throughout the country, and that was true when it first started, and it's still true now. There are some programs called what's called the Clubhouse Model. Um, that The Clubhouse Model was started for people who are living with mental illness and helping those folks primarily with building employment skills. And so they actually took that model and transitioned it to... Uh, people with brain injury as well. And there are 
a bunch of those out there, primarily in a few states where there's funding associated with that. That's a, a, a different model. It's very specific in its focus, and it's a very specific way of working with brain injury survivors. Ours is different and unique, and it, and it still is. It's really um, viewed very positively in the brain injury community, not only in the state, but regionally. But it's, you know, really a matter of funding. I think there should be more out there. I'd love to see that. And I think it's, I hope it's only a matter of time that there's uh, more funding available for programs like this. Yeah. So you, you have programming three days a week, is that right. correct? Yep. So what does that look like? So interestingly, it's very, the foundation of what we do every day is very similar to what we did way back. So the bones of it are still similar. So it's structured that, you know, we have something called early bird groups. It's really a group-based model. So what we're offering throughout their day are opportunities to participate in group programming. What's great about what we do is that we are not offering one class at a time, but we're offering, you know, three to five classes at a time. So people have lots of choice. Uh, the other great thing about our model is that people can participate as frequently or infrequently or for an hour on a day or for the whole day. So it starts off with what we call early bird groups. Those are more informal, anything from cards and coffee to computer tech to we usually have a like a like a volleyball game going on early. Um, then we have what's called community meeting. And that's when, if you're here for the day, you're probably going to be there for community meeting. It's when we connect as a big group. People have a chance to kind of chat with their friends, hear about the program day, and understand what their options are, and just kind of catch up with each other, catch up as a community. It's really, uh, you know, well, you've been, I think it's fairly yep. uh, energetic, mm-hmm. and people feel pretty psyched to be there and connect with each other. And then we have a morning group or class or classes. And again, people have like, you know, usually four or five choices to pick from. Anything from like a physical activity to what's considered like a functional skill, like a cooking class, to maybe something that's like creative arts, to we often are offering something that's more like cognitive or brain education oriented. And I feel like there's like another category I'm missing in there. Uh, Yes, more like psychosocial support. So some kind of like mental health oriented class. And so we'll offer that in the morning and then it's lunchtime and we are lucky enough to be at the community campus, which means we're a part of a micro community of nine other nonprofits and there's a big cafe. So often many of our community members are having lunch in the cafe. Um, we have our interns there. So there's usually about 60 or 70 people here. I fill in the cafeteria, maybe into some overflow space for the lunch hour. And then we have a one o'clock group, again, similar types of them I mentioned for the morning, but di- but different op- options. And then two days a week, we have what's called the uh, art studio, which is really a space for people who want to be working on their art to come together. It's not like a formal educational, it's more just like, you know, supportive environment for mm-hmm. working on art. And materials available, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the day. And yeah. it's, you know, three days a week. And there's no, there, while categorically you're going to see some overlap, like you might have a mental health group a couple different days, the topic's going to be different. The focus is going to be different. 
Um, or let's say you have pickleball on Monday and then Wednesday you might uh, be doing basketball or what have you. So again, categorically, we're going to be, you know, having similar, you know, I guess you could call them kind of domains that we're focusing on, but it all rotates. And then we change up that schedule. We have a fall semester of like a schedule that's the same, you know, and then a spring semester looks a little different than that. And in the winter and summer, we have a little different programming because we have less interns. So we have um, more people from the community coming in and sharing their skills and expertise. So everything from, you know, making jam to doing theater to maybe some performances or doing some history or what have you, just um, coming in, sharing, or maybe actually we had someone doing, um, it wasn't Taekwondo, but it was something like that this this summer. Um Northeast Passage, we have come usually doing some programming with us. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of shakes things up. So there's not the great part about our program, I think. um, One of the great parts is that there's nothing, um, there's nothing dull about it. Always have new people coming in, whether Mm -hmm. it's students or whether it's community members. And it gives our members a chance for a lot of socialization, a lot of opportunity for communication. Um, a lot of opportunity to share your story, that kind of thing, which is all good for reintegrating back in the community. Yeah. So you work with, in particular, occupational therapy and therapeutic recreationist programs from from your and speech and language. Oh, yep. speech and language. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, you've talked about a bunch of different kind of programming that you do. How much are are those people? How how much are the how much are the UNH staff involved in and faculty involved in helping you design appropriate programming? And uh, how much is that as your, yeah. your staff? I mean, is it a collaboration? What does that look like? So I would say, well, first of all, we always get feedback from our members and they tell us like what's programming they really enjoy with the work, you know, what, what they'd like to see more of. Um, uh, we, have an expectation of our, so our students are facilitating the groups. We provide supervision in the morning and in the afternoon. They have to put together a planner for their groups and on their planners, they have to uh, provide information about how this is evidence-based in terms of the therapeutic benefits of what they're going to be doing with our members. So it's, I would say, rigorous in that way in terms of it's not activities, you know, it's actually therapeutic programming. Um, we have two licensed occupational therapists on staff. We have a licensed social worker. Um, we have another MSW on staff. So we bring that professional expertise okay. um, with varying years of experience working with people with brain injuries specifically. And then we always are collaborating with our UNH, you know, whoever our yeah. kind of point people are in the okay. department. Mm-hmm. Um, and we usually are meeting with them and talking with them throughout the semester we actually have one therapeutic rec staff member here um, supporting the TR students once a week for the supervisory piece that they're required. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we are providing, you know, we're, we're providing the, the supervision. So I would say it kind of varies by department in terms of how the communication. And then you have, like, we also have social work students in psych, psychology students, but the their, their experience is a little different. So we might have a different working relationship with them. Okay. Again, just varies department by department. So you have interns here and you're requiring uh, for them to show you the evidence-based therapeutic uh, value. Can you give me an example of an activity and then kind of explain 
what's a therapeutic value? What we're talking when when we say therapeutic value, what what does that look like when you're working with uh, brain injury? Mm. What kind of therapeutic mm-hmm. value are we talking about? So maybe it's about supporting our members to come up with coping mechanisms for areas of deficit, for example. Maybe it's coming up with adaptive uh, ways to adapt to be able to participate in an activity. And so it's about deeper participation. It's about skill, you know, skill building, for example. So, or to say, we're going to focus on, for example, helping people understand about a certain part of their brain and how that works. And then if you have an injury to that brain, how, what, you know, what, what that what that mean can mean for a person and then talking about how educating people about their injury has therapeutic benefit. Mm-hmm. So those would be, I think, a few different ways that someone might be able to show that. Okay. Um, it, maybe they have some literature to sort of back, back it up or what have you. So, so, so can you give me an activity that would do one of those things? And then how does that actually... So like, is it So it could or? be, uh, yeah, it could be. It could be something like, our, I was thinking more about, you know, something like a physical activity okay. group, um, how to help people participate, or like a cooking group, or like a, you know, yeah. um, sort of an ed- so, education group. So it, it yeah. kind of completely varies. On more of the creative arts end, I mean, I think there's tons of literature out there, and I think students would have a very hard time at all finding sort of this therape- the therapeutic benefits of mm-hmm. art. I think especially when you bring in not only like the, so, and there's all kinds of benefits, right? So there's the psychological healing benefit of art. There's the actual being able to participate in doing art with adaptations. There's also like the sequencing piece, you know, like, okay, you want to take an, an art, a project from point A to point Z. Think about the cognitive skills it takes to go through that process, the transitions to the next steps or what have you. So there's all of that just from doing a piece of art or craft. And then if there's some other, what what I love to see is when that's a creative arts experience is layered with telling your story, your brain injury story, or telling some part of your brain injury story. So for example, we, we did this photo program where people were sharing a story through a photo about about their injury. So you can you can see all of those pieces come into play in terms of planning and doing art, for example. But then there's also this healing that takes place through the sharing of your story and educating other people. So those, I mean, you can just see the impact that has on people. Yeah. Yeah. So how many members do you have at any given time? Active members. I guess you probably yeah. have Pat. You have members who are maybe not coming. Right, right. So like on any given day, you said maybe 60 or 70 people in the cafeteria, but that includes interns. Right, so. right. So on, a, so on a given program day, we usually see about 35 or 40 brain okay. survivors. And in terms of like how many active members we have at any time, it's usually about 70. Like we'll see 70 in a month. Okay. Um, in a year, we'll see over 100. And what's the cost to them to participate? Uh, it depends on their fi- their financial situation. So we provide our services on a sliding scale for those who are um, below median area income for where they live. 
And so for some people, they don't pay anything to attend. I mean, you can imagine if, you know, if you've had a brain injury and you're not able to go to work, you're probably not going to be in too good right. shape financially. Right. So half the people that come to Crumble Center don't pay anything. Some people are like, you know, a, 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 a couple, one is still working, so they might have a little income or someone worked and built up, you know, some finance. They were pretty good shape. And so they're maybe paying a few dollars, you know, here, there, $15, $20 a day. Um, some people come to our program that have funding through the, through the state, basically. And though that doesn't pay for the full cost of their attendance, it pays for a portion of it, for the rate that we're getting. But our daily rate is 65 a day. Okay. And I would say probably 15% of the people that come can pay, pay that. full yeah. daily rate. Right. Does that match the cost of running the organization? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> it's probably about, to, so. yeah, maybe yeah. maybe 15% of our operating costs okay. are covered. Maybe 20%, something like that. So, yeah, we do a lot of fundraising. Yeah. So let's transition to kind of talk about your role then as, okay. as the executive director. I assume fundraising is an important part of what you do, or or you oversee. Uh, yeah, oversee. oversee. I guess so. I would, you have a, you have a fundraising person. Yes, yes. Okay. So so I have so I have my program team, and then I have um, what we call development. Okay. My development team. I have a development director, and then she has two two employees, not full time equivalent. I think it's basically mm-hmm. my development department is like two full time equivalents. Okay. And so she, I do have an important role of fundraising in the sense of if she tells me I need to be calling someone or <laughs> thanking see. someone, yeah. but just really relating, you know, having a really good relationship with our donors and also with our um, event partners. Cause we have a couple of big events that we're either putting on ourselves or the beneficiary of and making sure we have good relationships to keep those going and going well. And we do a lot, we do quite a bit of individual fundraising. And so we have important relationships with donors that we need to maintain. So I would say my role tends to be more of those relationships and and being a part of stewarding Mm -hmm. those relationships. And I would say my role is also around helping with cultivation too, cultivating new relationships. For and donors and for donors and other yeah. you know corporate corporate sure. sponsors or what have you for whatever those relationships are uh-huh. with the you know fundraising in mind with you know getting funding for the organization in mind um, but really it does fall on our development director to oversee our fundraising program yeah and uh, you know I do some public speaking as well like you came to a fireside chat and I spoke at that and so that's part of my job too is to help educate people about the organization and you know, bring in new friends yeah. to the organization. So, so in terms of of your annual operating budget, roughly what com- what percent comes from fees, and what percent comes from donations and and, uh, and from yeah. So we get you know it's like twenty percent fees, I would say, and then another you know ten fifteen percent, I would say, falls in like grants or other other um, kinds of. Fundraising, and then the remainder is, you know, events and individual gifts. So I have a six hundred thousand dollars budget, and we basically about half a million of it is is fundraising. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a lot of fundraising. That's a lot of fundraising. <laughs> and you said you do some big events. Yeah. What, what do you do for fundraising events? So we have two. Um, so outside of like our, our our donor events, we have two special events. 
One is the King Challenge um, event, which is a cycling fundraiser, which is on October 19th this year. Super fun. I will be riding. It's basically uh, three different cycling routes on the seacoast. Um, and every person who's riding is fundraising a, a minimum of $150. And it's really fun. It's a very festive event. And we do that with a partner. So we've worked with a partner for since we started that event in 2011. And there is a sort of a celebrity involved. I say he's a celebrity. I think maybe on the a small letter C celebrity, Teddy King, who used to be a pro cyclist and rode in the Tour de France twice. And his dad attends Crumple Center. Okay. And so he has a lot of friends in the cycling world. And in the region, because, you know, for those in cycling, they know who he is. And so he helps us to have have that event be successful. And he tells his family story, which is really generous of him. So that's a pretty cool, fun fundraising event. Um, and what's really cool about it is that um, our members who want to ride, we have an adaptive course right there as well. And so with Northeast Passage, we put, put our members who want to ride on the, on the road as well to, to participate. So that makes it pretty great. And then actually some of our members can do the longer routes. So a couple, um, guys I've, I've ridden with on the route and that's probably the, one of the most rewarding experiences, just, you know, seeing them doing their thing and knowing they struggle with other you know, aspects of living with a brain injury, but they're out there on their bikes being athletic and that's pretty cool. Yeah. Great. So the other uh, special event is the Runner's Alley, formerly Red Hook, now Cisco Brewers, Runner's Alley, Cisco Brewers 5K. And that's actually a quite an old 5K. In its heyday, it had over 2,000 runners participating. It's got a kids fun run, which is really fun too. That's over Memorial Weekend. We've been the beneficiary for almost its whole run, and I think it's been going for maybe 22 years now. Um, I think last year we had about 1,500 runners, so still a pretty good wow. turnout for that, and that's a, a great fundraiser for us. So also a good way to raise awareness about our organization and about brain injury. So okay. those are great events for us. So, so in addition to so, – so kind of thinking about your role, uh, I jumped into that with kind of the, the fundraising piece. I'm yeah. Finance, I'm a finance guy, so I want to know ah, where, yeah. where it comes from. Uh, so what are the other kind of moving parts? So you have the, you have, we've talked about the programming yep. piece. Yep. What else do you uh, oversee? So, you know, because we're a small organization, we have like 10 employees. Um, I'm the HR director and I'm the finance director. All right. <laughs> right. Uh, probably the IT director, even though it's not my forte, but you know, you use a lot of IT we're dealing with here. So, um, unfortunately, fortunately, I have some great staff that are, um, helping me out with, with some of those things and more of the details. I'm working with the board is a huge part of my job. Working with the board, working with the committees, um, moving our strategic plan forward. We're just about to go into another strategic planning process because we're in our third year of our plan. So we need to be kicking that off now. So I think. The whole gamut of ensuring we're meeting our mission and we are healthy and functioning as a corporation and that we are working towards strategic, you know, have our strategic hat on when we're thinking about the future and what opportunities are there and what are going to be the challenges 
and continuing to improve and grow over time. So as the executive director, what keeps you up at night when you're thinking about the organization? I would say certainly finances at times are pretty stressful. Yeah. Something's not going. I mean, really the expenses end typically nothing goes too nuts on that end. It's usually more about variances on the income end. And fortunately, what tends to happen is you're coming up short here on the right, but you're making up for it here on the left. That's It happens pretty much every year that way. And the more dramatic, though, the more stressful it is. So we maybe are coming up shy on one of our special events, 10,000. Well, if we get a a couple $5,000 donors on the other end, we're breaking even on it. And that's good. So making sure that we're figuring, we're anticipating that, seeing, you know, what's happening with whatever it is, or maybe it's the other way. Maybe it's like we lost a $10,000 donor for some reason, whatever they're moving their funds somewhere else or what have you, or they can't do it this year or whatever. Well, we've got to make up for it. Maybe we can make up for it with a, you know, on a special events or a grant or what have you. So those, yes, those are, you know, and I, I'm glad that I'm not alone in worrying about it, though I hate the fact that my development director and I are usually the ones that are worrying about that together. And, uh-huh. But she's also probably glad to not be alone in it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's the kind of thing that worries yeah. me. I would suppose otherwise, you know, I do think, you know, other things, are there opportunities that I, I need to know about that could expand what we're doing or what have you, understanding funding, Worrying, I, I think this isn't really based on anything realistic, but just worrying, am I missing something, you know, that's going to be good for the organization? You know, I'm missing out on an opportunity that 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 could be of help to us because um, I'm not talking to the right person or what have you. But again, that's not really specific to anything. It's just more like I want to do good by the organization. It's as yeah. simple as that, you know. You came on board in 2009. Yeah. That so it was a bad time financially, right? So true. we were in the middle of uh, yeah. deep in the financial crisis. Yeah, very um, true. How did that affect Kremples and affect your efforts? And how has that changed over time? That's really interesting. I don't think I really, because we were in it, I don't think I really put it together. But that was, it was a particularly stressful time around that 2010 time. 2009, I was just getting my feet wet, right? And just getting, mm-hmm. but then because that was actually about the time we made a decision to invest in a development director. We hadn't had one until then. We were kind of scraping by and working to make it work. And we made a big decision, which in retrospect was um, a little bit risky, right? Because we're like saying, okay, we know it's going to cost us a bit of money to upfront to pay for this position, but we, think we've got some low hanging fruit and that it will pay off. And it did. So I would say we were able to ride that out. And I think part of why we were really stressing was because things were looking pretty crappy out there. Yeah. I mean, I imagine a lot of people who had discretionary money to give probably suddenly didn't or had a lot yeah, less. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right? True. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you've spent most of your career in nonprofits, a little stint right. in government. What do you think the most challenging thing is about working in the nonprofit sector? I would, yeah, I guess it would, it would have to be just the, the fundraising stress, I would say. Mm. And I think probably in our case, 
In our case, we're primarily not gathering federal estate dollars. We're getting some indirect indirect dollars that's coming through another nonprofit that's coming from the state slash federal government. I do think that if we were more reliant directly on those dollars, that would be really stressful because New Hampshire is not generous with their government funding. And, you know, it's just less and less. And so um, organizations have to work harder and harder to do the work that they're doing, which is really unfortunate because it's all so essential to having a happy, healthy community or as healthy as you can be. So that's too bad. But yeah, I would say that's the most challenging is just the, just the fundraising. I find the, though that it's, while it's stressful and challenging to fundraise, it's also quite inspiring to, and humbling to work, w- to be able to work with such generous people in the community. Like whether it's, you know, individuals, or companies that are providing, you know, what sponsorship dollars or food for an event or what have you. There's just a lot of generous people out there. And that really is quite moving. And I think balances out very much the stress of, of the fundraising piece. What do you see the future of uh, Crumples looking like? So you're working on your strategic mm. planning. I mean, if I could wave a magic wand, I would so have like Crumple Center like programs and others of state. I would take it as far as it possibly could because I do think it's a model that works. It's a model that's really impactful. Um, I love the university partnerships we have and I think that's really building professionals in that way. So there's that other benefit outside of the really important work that we're doing with brain injury survivors. So that's my magic wand, and I would love to see us do a couple of new things. And again, it's all funding, really funding-based, but to do more around vocational programming, overt vocational programming. For the members. For the members, yep. Just being able to provide more support because vocational rehabilitation, great. They do great work. They don't – they it's hard to work with brain injury survivors, I think, versus someone with like a physical disability to figure because there's so much invisible there. And so that's not an area that that's very strong for them. And so it's often a hard transition for our members to go back to employment. And that's true for brain injury survivors everywhere. I mean, it's a huge issue. It's a huge problem. I'd love to be able to do some partnering there. And also I think what we're seeing emerging is, uh, in, in the brain injury world is a lot more people coming to us who are struggling with post-concussive syndrome and are, that? so they are months or six months plus out away from a concussion or a series of concussions, multiple concussions. And they're still struggling with the after effects is still impacting them day to day and really could use some support. And so we I think we have a great idea around providing that, kind of support the model that we have isn't quite the right fit for them, but we have some sense of what would be. But again, if we can, if we could get some dollars to go with that, we think we've got a lot of expertise to make that happen. So I could see, so I think magic wand, I would do all of those things and really expand more what we're doing. 
couple questions on leadership and then we'll, we'll mm. cut it off. Okay. So what would you say your leadership philosophy is? Oh, philosophy. Um, my leadership philosophy, I think it's just, honestly, it's being a good listener, supporting people, building their leadership skills. I think just being a, a kind person around my colleagues and giving them lots of gratitude for the work that they do. And having been on the other side where I've worked for a leader or leaders in the past and just knowing that, you know, people really are paying attention to what you're doing. And so I'm try I try to be attentive to that and recognize the power that I have and recognize my role and just trying to be a good steward of the organization and model, I guess, being a good leader and being a good human being. You talked a couple of times about organizational culture when you're talking about kind of mm. your, your journey yeah. here and some good cultures, some not so good cultures. What aspects of organizational culture are particularly important to you and how do you try to shape that within, mm. within this organization? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of why I love being here is that is this is an incredibly positive culture and I feel a little bit like it's a little utopian in that sense and it really you know, fits with my social worky heart. <laughs> for sure. I have no tolerance for speaking poorly of friends of the organization. I expect people to be diplomatic in their communications. I expect people to show how to talk about people. And sure, we deal with frustrations and people aren't always meeting our expectations, but I do expect people to speak diplomatically of anyone associated with the organization. And I think people, and I think that comes naturally to people working here. And then I think that sort of filters down then. I mean, it filters up because that's how our culture is. Our our member culture is, is just like, yeah, you have a tough time communicating. We're going to wait for you. Or you need a hand with that. I've got your back. You want me to just be here while you sort of struggle through and do it yourself? All right, I'm with you kind of thing. That's how our members relate to each other. And so I think that trickles up and then we trickle down in terms of just, I I don't want to say it's like, I heard, um, you know, it's called the Disney effect where people don't need to know what's going on behind the building. Mm. They just need to like go in there, have fun and experience the, the show or whatever at Disney. And that's what I ask of, our staff to do as well and they do a fantastic job with so that our members don't have to be thinking about anything but themselves and their experience here and getting what they need out of the organization. So for a young person thinking about a career in health, Mm. why social work or working with uh, brain injury, well how would you sell kind of your your career? Yeah. I think, you know, I think everyone has to find their own path. And I think it really is kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of trying things out. Is it a fit? What is it specifically that's really working for you? Or what is it specifically that's really not? And then keep on doing that until you find what's right. I was never one of those people that I had like, okay, this is my vision. I'm going to do this. And this is, you know, the the path I'm going to pursue was always like, 
okay, what's next? Okay, what's next? So here I am at Crumble Center 10 years later, and I didn't have a vision for something different. It was like, okay, this is the right fit for right now, and yet I'm still here, and that's because I love it. I love everything about it, from the work culture to the people work, the professionalism, the creativity, the innovation, the meaningful impact we're having that I see every day. And so I want to keep doing that. So I think it's about finding what you love and keeping on doing it. And if it's not what you love, figure out what that is and be okay with flailing around for a while. Like I clearly did as we went through my years of (laughs) hopping around, but I'd have zero regrets, you know, from that, whether it was internships, jobs, my semester, not in school and trying something out, hopping around with my figuring out what I was going to get a degree in. It's all good in my mind. It's all good experience. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, kind of in closing, for people who might want to follow Kremples, maybe find out more, uh, where can they find uh, you guys and, yeah. online and you know, social yeah. media or whatever? And we love interns of all kinds. So okay. if someone's listening and you think it might be a good place for you to be, we'd be glad to talk to you about it, even if you're not in one of those particular disciplines that, that I mentioned. Um, so crumplecenter.org is our website. Um, and you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has yeah. been great. Thanks a ton, Mark. It's been awesome. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.